You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis, and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 107, Highway to the Danger Zone, Gotta Take It Right into the Danger Zone. This week, a big thank you goes out to Bart, James, and Christopher for choosing to support the podcast by becoming members. You can head on over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members to find out more. The guarantee provided to Poland by the British government in the spring of 1939 was not the only agreement that would be reached in the months before the war. As we discussed last episode, there were discussions between the British, French, and Soviet governments with the goal of creating some kind of mutual assistance pact, but the discussions never really went anywhere. The lethargic nature of those talks can be traced back to the lack of urgency shown by the Western governments when it came to getting the pact in place, and the Soviet insistence that any agreement could only be signed after meaningful military planning took place. What would not be lethargic was Germany's attempt in August 1939 to sign a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union. In, In this episode, we will look at those efforts, the discussions that would occur among Hitler and the German military at the same time that their diplomatic overtures were being made, the reaction of other nations to the announcement of the non-aggression pact, and finally, the last attempts near the end of August 1939 to diffuse the tension between Germany and Poland. We start with another nation that was very interested in the actions of Germany in the summer of 1939, Italy. Italy had signed the Pact of Steel with Germany on May 22, 1939, and this kicked off a very lively summer for the Italian Foreign Minister Siano as he had discussions with the German government uh, whose decisions had the possibility of pulling Italy into a war. These discussions would escalate in urgency as relations between Germany and Poland continued to deteriorate over the course of the summer. During these talks, Siano and the Italians were always pushing for some kind of peaceful solution, which almost certainly would have required an international conference between Italy, Germany, France, and Britain. On July 26th, this type of solution was proposed to Hitler by Siano, with the German leader not really seeing such a peaceful option as really a viable path forward. The real key to this mindset, which would be communicated very bluntly to Siano in August, was that Hitler firmly believed that if he went to war with Poland, France and Britain would not enter the conflict, regardless of whatever their agreements were with Poland. Siano believed that there was no chance that Germany could keep a Polish conflict localized, 
But during multiple meetings spanning August 11th through 13th with both Ribbentrop and Hitler, it was reiterated multiple times that France and Britain, according to the German leaders, would not fight. To quote from Siano's account of these meetings, when he pressed this issue with Hitler, the response would be from Hitler that, quote, I personally am absolutely convinced that the Western democracies will, in the last resort, recoil from unleashing a general war, end quote. Siano would write in his diary after this last meeting with Hitler on August 13th that, quote, I returned to Rome completely disgusted with the Germans, with their leader, with their way of doing things. They have betrayed us and lied to us. Now they are dragging us into an adventure which we have not wanted and which might compromise the regime and the country as a whole, end quote. He was absolutely right in that last bit about it compromising the regime and the country. Obviously, in these personal notes that he's taking, Siano was a bit harsher in his words than any official Italian communication, but it, it's most likely closer to his actual feelings. Unfortunately for the Italian government, their desires for a delay in the start of a war would have little impact on German decision-making. And to be clear, the Italian government was not concerned about a war starting in general, just that it was starting too soon. They were kind of looking at a 1942 start date as when they wanted the war to start. In the area of German foreign relations, of much greater importance during August 1939 were the discussions that would occur between the German government and the Soviet Union. Relations between the two nations had been improving over the course of the summer of 1939, after they had greatly deteriorated after Hitler had come to power in 1933. The idea of a more formal agreement between the two governments, if only of an economic nature, would begin to be discussed during the spring of 1939, shortly after the Germans had invaded the rest of Czechoslovakia, because the Soviet government was concerned about some contracts that had been signed with Skoda, the Czechoslovakian armament firm, and whether or not their products would still be delivered now that Germany was in control. By August, these conversations were becoming targeted due to the impending schedule for the invasion of Poland. On August 10th, German Foreign Minister Ribbentrop would meet with the Soviet Charge d'Affaires Askatov in Berlin for a wide-ranging discussion on German and Soviet relations. Here's a small excerpt from the summary written up by the German Foreign Ministry. Quote, I could again assure Herr Askatov, as I had already done on various occasions, that even in the event of a solution by force of arms, German interests in Poland were quite limited. They did not at all need to collide with Soviet interests of any kind, but we had to know those interests. If the motive behind the negotiations conducted by Moscow with England was the feeling of being threatened by Germany in the event of a German-Polish conflict, we, for our part, were prepared to give the Soviet Union every assurance desired, which would surely carry more weight than support by England, which could never become effective in Eastern Europe. Askatov was keenly interested, but naturally had no instructions of, of any kind from Moscow to discuss the subject of Poland or the subject of the negotiations in Moscow. End quote. In the two weeks between when that meeting with Askatov occurred and when the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact was signed, there would be a flurry of communications between Berlin and Moscow. The first stage of communication mostly revolved around the German government making it very clear that it wanted to sign an agreement and was very serious about signing one in the immediate future. On August 14th, the German ambassador in Moscow was told to meet with Molotov and make it clear that the German government did not believe that the ideological differences between the two governments were a problem, and that there was no real geographic cause for problems either, in a precursor to the later sort of sphere of influence agreements. 
The note to the German ambassador in Moscow would state, quote, The Reich government is of the opinion that there is no question between the Baltic and the Black Seas which cannot be settled to the complete satisfaction of both countries, end quote. When this message was received very well, and Molotov indicated that the Soviet government was interested in further discussions, Ribbentrop offered to fly to Moscow within days to conclude discussions. It was proposed that he would come not just quickly, but with full diplomatic powers to sort out any kind of disagreement. When you contrast this with the low-level functionary sent from London and Paris and being sent on a slow boat just a few weeks earlier, you can kind of see how the Soviets thought that maybe the Germans were far more serious. Now, the Soviet response to the suggestion that Ribbentrop fly to Moscow was basically to, to kind of pump the brakes, like you would in a relationship that was accelerating too quickly. Instead of just jumping directly into negotiations at the foreign minister level, the Soviets instead drafted a non-aggression pact that they gave to the German ambassador to get approval of the document as the basis for negotiations. Even this happened quite quickly, though, and this was communicated the next day, August 19th, just a day after Ribbentrop's offer to fly to Moscow. Then, just two days later, Ribbentrop would be on a flight to Moscow, with full powers of agreement on behalf of the German government. There were a few small disagreements that had to be ironed out, but these were like the smallest of details, primarily around the specific spheres of influence granted to both nations. As an example, the Soviets wanted to keep the city of Lebao or Lipaja, a modern city in Latvia, which amounted to a tiny adjustment in kind of the grand scheme of the territorial discussions that were occurring between Ribbentrop and Molotov. Then, on the 23rd of August, the agreement was made official. In just a few moments, I will full read through the seven articles of the agreement. They're pretty short, which essentially just say that the nations were signing a non-aggression pact, and they agreed not to directly or indirectly go to war. The seven articles seem pretty standard to me when it comes to the wording of non-aggression agreements during the 1930s. What is far more interesting is the secret protocol attached to the treaty. The secret protocol functioned in a similar way to what was attached to the British and Polish guarantee uh, that we read last time. It said the things clearly and unequivocally that could not be clearly spelled out in the public text. Most importantly, it clearly spelled out the boundaries of the various spheres of influence, with the Baltic states and the boundaries placed within the nation of Poland and how it should be carved up. It is probably worth mentioning here that the Soviet Union would officially deny that they had signed any secret protocol with Germany at this time, and this denial would only be reversed in the late 1980s. I bring up this topic because if you do go out there on, on the internet, you can still find sources that predate the official recognition of the protocol and then the later publishing of the full text of the agreement signed by the Soviet government. In those older sources, you can often find denials of the secret protocols or even claims that they were some kind of Western hoax created during the Cold War. As far as I know, there is no denial of the existence of the protocols in 2022, you know, the current date, and just a debate about the morality of their signature, which I will kind of just leave for you to decide. So here is the full text of the agreement as it was signed. 
Article 1. Both high contracting parties obligate themselves to desist from any act of violence, any aggressive action, and any attack on each other, either individually or jointly with other powers. Should one of the high contracting parties become the object of belligerent action by a third power, the other high contracting party shall in no manner lend its support to this third power. Article 3. The governments of the two high contracting parties shall in the future maintain continual contact with one another for the purpose of consultation in order to exchange information on problems affecting their common interests. Article 4. Should disputes or conflicts arise between the high contracting parties, neither shall participate in any grouping of powers whatsoever that is directly or indirectly aimed at the other party. Article 5. Should disputes or conflicts arise between the high contracting parties over problems of one kind or another, both parties shall settle these disputes or conflicts exclusively through friendly exchange of opinion or, if necessary, through the establishment of arbitration commissions. Article 6. The present treaty is concluded for a period of 10 years, with the provisio that, insofar as one of the high contracting parties does not advance it in one year prior to the expiration of this period, the validity of this treaty shall automatically be extended for another five years. Article 7. The present treaty shall be ratified within the shortest possible time. The ratification shall be exchanged in Berlin. The agreement shall enter into force as soon as it is signed. This is the secret protocol. Article 1. In the event of a territorial or political rearrangement in the areas belonging to the Baltic states, Finland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, the northern boundary of Lithuania shall represent the boundary of the spheres of influence of Germany and USSR. In this connection, the interests of Lithuania in the Vilna area is recognized by each party. Article 2. In the event of the territorial and political rearrangement of the areas belonging to the Polish state, the spheres of influence of Germany and the USSR shall be bounded approximately by the line of the rivers Narav, Vistula, and San. The question of whether the interests of both parties make desirable the maintenance of an independent Polish state and how such a state shall be bounded can only be definitely determined in the course of further political developments. In any event, both governments will resolve this question by means of a friendly agreement. Article 3. With regard to southeastern Europe, attention is called by the Soviet side to their interest in Bessarabia. The German side declares its complete political disinterest in these areas. Article 4. This protocol should be treated by both parties as strictly secret. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. 
We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The reason that the German government was so motivated to get an agreement signed as soon as possible came down to the fact that the date for the invasion of Poland was rapidly approaching, or its original date of August 26th. The German military spent the second half of August frantically preparing for the invasion and trying to put in place defensive preparations in western Germany just in case France and Britain did decide to go to war. For example, on the 19th, a week before the initial start date of the invasion, the German Navy was given orders to sail. And as a reminder, Ribbentrop had originally wanted to fly to Moscow on August 18th, and would actually do so only on the 22nd. So the negotiations with Moscow were occurring simultaneously as what amounted to war orders were being sent out to the German military. This also meant that the agreement did not necessarily change any plans for the German invasion, as they were already made before negotiations even started. The agreement was kind of just a cherry on top. In London, the announcement of the non-aggression pact was concerning, to say the least. The British government knew that Ribbentrop had traveled to Moscow, but they were surprised by the quick turnaround on an agreement. It would prompt the passage of the Emergency Powers Bill and some mobilization measures to be taken on August 24th. That's how serious it was considered. The British ambassador, Henderson, would be sent with a letter to deliver to Hitler. He was not thrilled with the message, and Henderson would relay to London that it threw Hitler into a violent rage, with threats involved that Britain should not get involved in German-Polish relations. On August 25th, when the two met again, the conversation was very different, with Hitler taking a very conciliatory tone, saying that much like with the Soviet Union, the British and German governments could surely come to some kind of agreement. Hitler even believed that the agreement between the two nations could go further, and not just be in the form of a non-aggression pact, but also one of mutual assistance. He also offered a guarantee that Germany would not in any way interfere with the British Empire. What seems clear from these discussions is that Hitler was hoping that Chamberlain and the British government could be tempted by the same fruit that had been offered to Stalin in the Soviet government, with Germany claiming that they would stay away from a certain area and and give the other nation sort of free reign in whatever region they wanted. This idea rested on one major miscalculation, a simple underestimation of how important to British interests the British government considered the stability of the continent of Europe. The domination of Europe by one power, even one with agreements signed with London, was not seen as being in the interest of the British Empire. It was a concentration of resources that, even if it did not involve an immediate war, would give a single nation far more resources than can be mustered by the British. And Hitler and the German government had also very clearly shown that they would not honor agreements, which did not help their case at all. 
Ambassador Henderson would write to London late on the 25th that with his notes on the conversation, saying, quote, Conversation lasted an hour, my attitude being that Russian pact in no way altered standpoint of His Majesty's government, and that I must tell him quite honestly that Britain could not go back on her word to Poland, and that I knew his offer would not be considered unless it meant a negotiated settlement of the Polish question. Herr Hitler refused to guarantee this on grounds that Polish provocation might at any moment render German intervention to protect German nationals inevitable. I again and again returned to this point, but always got the same answer. End quote. Even with the British rejection of these discussions on the 25th, there would still be some shred of belief by Hitler that he would still be presented with the opportunity to gain a negotiated settlement with London and Paris, even after a Polish invasion was launched. During this time, most of Hitler's attention was focused on Britain instead of on France. French Prime Minister Daladay had earlier written to Hitler that, quote, if the blood of France and Germany flows again, as it did 25 years ago, in a longer and even more murderous war, each of the two, people will f each of the two peoples will fight with the confidence of his own victory. But the most certain victors will be the forces of destruction and barbarism, end quote. And then on August 26th, another letter would be sent from Daladay, re-emphasizing that France would fight in defense of Poland and that it would lead a to a long and bloody war. But such letters would have no effect on Hitler or his plans. One gets the feeling that Hitler judged that British actions would dictate those of France, which, as we've discussed during the Munich crisis episodes, was not the worst assumption that Hitler would make during August 1939. On August 24th, an important step was taken, and the rest of British and French non-official civilians were evacuated from Germany, and on the 25th, German citizens would be asked to leave Britain, France, and Poland immediately. During all of this time, military preparations continued on the German-Polish border. The Polish and German troops were in relatively close proximity for days before the actual invasion began. Orders were sent to Polish troops to not take any offensive action against German actions, as outlined in a note from the French ambassador to Poland, who was in Warsaw on August 28th. Quote, the Polish troops have received orders from Marshal Rydz Smigli not to reply to any German provocation. Their task is to drive back any incursions into Polish territory, but to take strict care not to cross the frontier. End quote. Also on the 28th, Henderson would again meet with Hitler, bringing with him another communication from the British government, which once again restated that it would go to war if it had to, but it was still open to negotiations. Henderson would record that, quote, Herr Hitler continued to argue that Poland could never be reasonable. She had England and France behind her, and imagined that even if she were beaten, she would later recover, thanks to their help, more than she might lose. He spoke of annihilating Poland. I said, that reminded me of similar talk last year of annihilation of the Czechs. He retorted that we were incapable of inducing Poland to be reasonable. I said, it was just because we remembered at the experience of Czechoslovakia last year that we hesitated to press Poland too far today. Nevertheless, we reserved to ourselves the right to form our own judgment as to what was and or what was not reasonable so far as Poland or Germany were concerned. We kept our hands free in that respect. End quote. But in the official German response to these conversations, their response would be much more measured, and they pulled on a st every string that was provided. The German government now claimed that it was ready to negotiate directly with the Polish government, but the key was they wanted a representative of the Polish government to be dispatched to Berlin within 24 hours. 
And that representative had to have full powers of negotiation to agree to anything that was signed on behalf of the Polish government. This was the German tactic used on multiple different occasions over the previous two years, which basically boiled down to getting a foreign leader into a room with Hitler and then letting Hitler or Ribbentrop threaten and yell at them enough to get an agreement. Very complex form of national diplomacy. It had happened to Austria, it had happened to Czechoslovakia, it had happened to Lithuania, and Polish Foreign Minister Beck was far less interested in such an adventure. He, he knew what would happen. I think we'll stop here for today and kind of pick up this thread on, on a later episode. But I hope you will join me next episode for a bit of an interwar reflection sort of discussion. We'll discuss the first 107 episodes, some of the themes that, that were kind of running throughout all of them, and also I'll kind of talk about what kind of surprised me uh, researching them and, and preparing the episodes for you to listen to. As always, thank you for listening.